As Washington experienced it, the American love story was a love of justice, a story of Americans asserting themselves with expectations of justice in America's dealing. He made the future of the country to depend upon the conduct of his people, the use of whose liberty would determine how far the nation could remain faithful. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. This week, we're going back in time to 2014 in a lecture delivered here in Grand Rapids by Professor William B. Allen. In 1783, George Washington said that, quote, we have a national character to establish. 110 years later, Frederick Jackson Turner published the significance of the frontier in American history, and wrote these words. To the frontier, the American intellect owes its striking characteristics, coarseness and strength, combined with acuteness and inquisitiveness, that practical, inventive turn of mind, that dominant individualism, working for good and for evil, and with all that buoyancy and exuberance which comes with freedom. Turner identified the closing of the frontier as a watershed for national character. In the 110 years since, we have observed that Washington's project could not be contained in limited geographic descriptions. Have we then a national character? And if we do, is it a friend to liberty? Professor Allen is a professor of political philosophy at Michigan State University, and at the time of this recording, was the senior visiting scholar at the Matthew J. Ryan Center for the Study of Free Institutions and the Public Good at Villanova University. His areas of expertise include the American founding and U.S. Constitution, the American founders, particularly George Washington, the influence of various political philosophers, especially Montesquieu, on the American founding, liberal arts education, its history, importance and problems, and the intersection of race and politics. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful thing to be able to be with you here today and to return to the Institute after some time now. Uh, in fact, though I have been here more recently than this, my very first association, Mike, was some 22 years ago, roughly, when I had first come to Michigan State University as a dean at James Madison College. And we held a seminar out in California, San Clemente, I believe it was, one of the uh, pastors and seminarian seminars. And uh, Bob Sirico asked if I wouldn't be a presenter on that occasion. So we've had frequent occasions since then to work together. And it's all been to my great delight. And not without taking special note of the tremendous progress of the Institute over the course of these two and a half decades. And, and what we see here now is such a magnificent accomplishment. I can only come in to commend all of you who've taken part in bringing this to be. You have certainly set down a marker, a marker that says that the work of liberty and faith 
is a work that can thrive in these United States. And so we begin these reflections this afternoon on a very optimistic and high note, one that has been shaped by the efforts of the Acton Institute. And I'm very proud to have uh, even a slight degree of association with them. So yes, today we want to talk about American national character. Uh, the full title is Moral Frontiers, American National Character and the Future of Liberty. And this uh, particular set of remarks will be perhaps somewhat abstract in their formulation. So I begin by begging your patience. I want you to bear with me. I think this is a story that is worth telling, even though it requires us to labor somewhat in order to get through it. And, and that's because we are at some remove from the origins of these things, and we need to re-familiarize ourselves with where we have been. America is a love story, and every true love story is a moral commitment. What is wonderful about true love is the way it expresses that moral commitment. For every lover expects her beloved to be just, not only with her, but in all his dealings, while the beloved affords the lover certain liberties. The final act of justice is the beloved's trust that the lover will make good and faithful use of her liberty. To be more prosaic, let us say that the people and the political union are wedded to each other with mutual expectations of fidelity. This is an odd expression, and it will become apparent as such once you consider the alternative possibility, which is to say that the people are mutually committed to one another, and the political union derives from that collective identification. The formulation I prefer means, therefore, that America is a chosen nation. And as such, the substantial meaning of the choice defines the relationship. The people have made a moral commitment to the choice itself and not merely to one another. That choice is captured in the Declaration of Independence, which imposes moral persuasion as the only ground, the only legitimate grounds of polity, and in turn makes that governance the comprehensive moral foundation of political life. And if, as we come and came to the end of the 20th century, it had turned into an unlovable America, we would have to explain what caused that alienation of affection. Since the substantive choice is insusceptible to change, we'd have to look for a change in the people, pledge to that moral commitment. The American love story began with the Declaration of Independence, but it began to take decisive shape in 1783 when Washington said that we have now a national character to establish. Washington implied that the lovers had to prove themselves worthy of the beloved. The idea, therefore, was that in the decades, indeed, the centuries thereafter, the work of building a lasting union was to take place. Nevertheless, 110 years after Washington wrote, Frederick Jackson Turner published The Significance of the Frontier in American History. And he wrote those words you have heard, 
To the frontier, the American intellect owes its striking characteristics, among which he cites a dominant individualism, working for good and for evil. Missing in this is the beloved object of all this creative energy that Turner had identified. He looked to the closing of the geographical frontier as a watershed for national character. And in the 110 years since, he wrote, we have observed that Washington's project could not be contained in limbed geographic descriptions. For we have struggled to define America, let alone our relationship to it. Have we then a national character? And if we do, is it a lover of liberty? Turner's thesis was promptly embraced by the neo-progressives who sought a new account of America as the foundation for shaping policy in the nation. Franklin Delano Roosevelt encapsulated that process in the 1932 presidential campaign. He summarized the history leading to the closing of the frontier and the challenges that remained, I will quote. So began in American political life the new day, the day of the individual against the system, the day in which individualism was made the great watchword of American life. The happiest of economic conditions made that day long and splendid. On the western frontier, land was substantially free. No one who did not shirk the task of earning a living was entirely without opportunity to do so. At the very worst, there was always the possibility of climbing into a covered wagon and moving west, where the untilled prairies afforded a haven for men to whom the east did not provide a place. We can now see that the turn of the tide came with the turn of the century. We were reaching our last frontier. There was no more free land, and our industrial combinations had become great, uncontrolled, and irresponsible units of power within the state. Faith in America, faith in our tradition of personal responsibility, faith in our institutions, faith in ourselves demands that we recognize new terms for the old social contract. Now, the original form of this individualism argument that we see in Roosevelt and in Turner appeared in the analysis of Alexis de Tocqueville, who described it as an inward turning that shrinks public space and leaves the citizen at home only within the circle of family and friends. That view seems the predecessor to the contemporary reading of a society in which people adapt the tools of modern communication to build cocoons of like-minded discourse that foreclose the likelihood of consensus forming accommodation to difference. That is at least the way that Turner prophetically read the history. He said this, American social development has been continually beginning over again on the frontier. This perennial rebirth, this fluidity of American life, this expansion westward with its new opportunities, its continuous touch with the simplicity of primitive society, furnished the forces dominating American character. But the most important effect of the frontier has been in the promotion of democracy here and in Europe. As has been indicated, the frontier is productive of individualism. Complex society is precipitated by the wilderness into a kind of primitive organization based on the family. The tendency is antisocial. It produces antipathy to control and particularly to any direct control. The tax gatherer is viewed as a representative of oppression. 
The frontier conditions prevalent in the colonies are important factors in the explanation of the American Revolution, where individual liberty was sometimes confused with the absence of all effective government. And he concluded, and now, four centuries from the discovery of America, at the end of 100 years of life under the Constitution, the frontier has gone, and with it, with its going, has closed the first period of American history. And I might digress and say, closing that quotation from Turner, that that question of the closing of American history has been the question that has remained with us ever since. There have been all too many ready to declare an end to the great experiment in liberty in the United States. Just a few years ago in Israel, Rabbi Prusansky made the following observation following the election of 2012. The American empire began to decline in 2007, and the deterioration has been exacerbated in the last five years. This election only hastens that decline. Society is permeated with sloth, greed, envy, and materialistic excess. It has lost its moorings and its moral foundations. The takers outnumber the givers, and that will only increase in years to come. Across the world, America under Bush was feared but not respected. Under Obama, America is neither feared nor respected. Radical Islam has had a banner four years under Obama, and its prospects for future growth look excellent. The, the Occupy riots across this country in the last two years were mere dress rehearsals for what lies ahead. Years of unrest sparked by the increasing discontent of the unsuccessful who want to seize the fruits and the bounty of the successful and do not appreciate the slow pace of redistribution. Two bright sides, he goes on to say, and he's now talking about Israel. Notwithstanding the election results, I arose this morning, went to Shul, davened, and learned Torah afterwards. That is our reality and trumps all other events. Our relationship with God matters more than our relationship with any politician, Republican, or Democrat. And notwithstanding the problems in Israel, it is time for Jews to go home to Israel. We have about a decade, perhaps 15 years, to leave with dignity and without stress. Thinking that it will always be because it always was has been a repetitive and deadly Jewish mistake. America was always the land from which positive aliyah came, Jews leaving on their own and not fleeing a dire situation. But that can also change. The increased aliyah in the last few years is partly attributable to young people fleeing the high cost of Jewish living in America. These costs will only increase in the coming years. We should draw the appropriate conclusions. If this election, the election of 2012, proves one thing, it is that the old America is gone and sad for the world. It is not coming back. The rabbi has a very bleak view of the future of the United States and the character of the people of America. But the rabbi is not alone. As we shall see shortly, others have similarly reflected on the waning of the rising tide that shaped the 18th century, but hardly survived through the 19th century, according to this theory. That first period of our history, according to Turner, was one in which the ideals of equality, freedom of opportunity, faith in the common man were deep-rooted throughout the Middle West and eventually transmitted through the Western frontiers. The frontier stage 
through which each portion passed left abiding traces on the older as well as on the newer areas of the province. Nor were these ideals limited to the Native American settlers. Germans and Scandinavians who poured into the Middle West sought the country with like hopes and like faith. These transformative effects colored the democracy peculiar to the West. And this is Turner's view of the matter. The peculiar democracy of the frontier has passed away with the conditions that produced it, but the democratic aspirations remain. They are held with passionate determination. The United States is unique in the extent to which the individual has been given an open field, unchecked by restraints of an old social order or of scientific administration of government. Now, what this argument means is that the American national character derived mainly from the interaction of lives lived under the press of necessity in the context of parsimonious participation by government. Beyond highways and rudimentary defense installations, the radical Democrat on the frontier hardly knew the government existed. What that hardy soul fell in love with was the strength of his own arms. Benign neglect on this theory was mistaken for liberty in society. In a more advanced state, approximating the conditions of the eastern states, this would not avail. Woodrow Wilson drew the conclusion in his work on constitutional government. He said, political liberty consists in the best practicable adjustment between the power of the government and the privilege of the individual. And the freedom to alter the adjustment is as important as the adjustment itself for the ease and progress of affairs and the contentment of the citizen. Political liberty became a privilege or a concession granted by government rather than a right to be claimed against government. From the closing of the frontier, neo-progressives derive problematic conceptions not only of liberty, but of what Turner called the scientific administration of government. A liberty fostered by circumstances rather than national character has only as much influence as the circumstances afford. Moreover, the confusion extended to the understanding of America's place in the world and the landscape of human rights. The emphasis shifted decisively from our relationship with the beloved country to our relationships among ourselves and with others globally, relationships mediated by government. We have a problem. And when we say we, we mean the citizens of the United States, until still more particularly, those who undertake systematically to explain what constitutes us citizens or a people in the United States. The intuitive sense is scarcely more than a vague geographic sensibility, while a more substantive construction now eludes us almost completely. The problem resides in confusion as to whether what constitutes us a people is a particular moral or political conformation, or rather some less deliberate, yet nonetheless evident cultural expression. The problem is that we have become clumsy about describing ourselves as a people in terms of what used to be called national character. For to some, if not many, the idea of character is a loaded term, implying the development of some specific moral or ethical expression that operates as a divisor separating those attaining the warranted degree of expression from other persons 
in the United States or elsewhere. Nevertheless, we find it awkward, we find it difficult to speak of our collective existence in any meaningful sense independently of some such distinguishing function. Our problem then is that we desire to be a people, but we hesitate to be a chosen people. A nation of immigrants, we like to say, as if to imply that the immigrants always remain immigrants and never become Americans. Common sense reprehends the very idea, while common practice relies upon it in our most important collective judgments. The problem we have did not emerge in an evolutionary manner as a natural outgrowth of political practice and development. Instead, it derived from a deliberate turning away from the reflexive forms of political discussion that characterized early United States political deliberation. The surest demonstration of this particular turning point or conversion would carry us through a fairly long survey of the discourse employed by a long series of statesmen and public intellectuals from the end of the 19th century to the present era. Fortunately, we can foreshorten that process by relying on the authority of a highly polished and intelligent summary by analysts who take it as their calling to cement the continuing influence of the contemporary progressive conversion in United States politics. And those are the representatives of the neo-progressive option presented through the work of the Center for American Progress. They have published an incredible statement on the meaning of progressivism, which serves the dual purpose of detailing the agenda that is fundamental to neo-progressivism, while at the same time revealing in the most dramatic fashion that element of the original progressive discourse that has been jettisoned in order to accomplish the conversion. To sum up the specific difficulty, and then next to show in detail how it comes to light, we may say at once that the problem is the abandonment of the idea of consent as fundamental to political legitimacy and substituting in the place of consent a welfare or enjoyment model of political legitimacy. Now this claim will not be immediately apparent. In order to discover its accuracy, however, one needs only to invoke the true and correct understanding of the Declaration of Independence and then to interrogate the apology for neo-progressivism on the basis of the Declaration. What will emerge is a clear understanding that neo-progressivism is formulated specifically to replace consent or the recognition of individual and collective agency as a legitimizing function with the welfare model, which holds that states are legitimate to the degree that governments extend enjoyments rather than to the extent that they are obedient to the commands of citizens. So let's review the argument from the Center for American Progress. Note that the term consent appears but once in the entire document, and then only in the appendix that reprints the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Moreover, it is instructive that it appears in that document where it does, namely defining the marriage relationship or the confined sphere of individual agency in the new order. At the same time, every discussion of political authority treats government as sui generis and citizens under government as dependents. 
The will of the people shall be the basis of the authority of government, I quote. This does not suggest that the government originates in the consent of the governed, for the government's authority is a thing apart from the existence of the government. The so-called will of the people has functional relationship in the operation of the government without for all that constituting the that without which the government cannot legitimately exist. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights in sum demotes those natural rights deriving from the laws of nature and of nature's God that are the hallmark of the Declaration of Independence to rights of enjoyment as opposed to agency, the right to a standard of living and security, as I quote, as opposed to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Similarly, the Center for American Progress statement demotes the natural right to life to a civil right that is predicated, in their words, on access to the bare minimum life-sustaining resources. Now, the best context in which to view this dramatic turn is in light of James Wilson's earlier definition of civil rights, namely, rights which are acquired. The citizen, he wrote, is entitled to the honest administration of the government in general. He's entitled in particular to the impartial administration of justice. Now, this account accords well with the movement and the meaning of the Declaration of Independence, which derives civil rights from just powers of government that in turn derive from the consent of the governed. In other words, the Declaration distinguishes the natural rights antecedent to every government and the resultant civil rights that restrain legitimate governments to observing and protecting those natural rights. By insisting on the civil rights while remaining silent about natural rights, the Center for American Progress statement effectively denies the foundations of the Declaration of Independence. The CAP statement takes this still bold position, although Woodrow Wilson had enunciated it long before, 100 years before, for the plain and compelling reason that it believes the political circumstances of the world have so changed as to render inadequate any purely national defense of natural rights. The United States Bill of Rights accordingly must yield to a second Bill of Rights that embraces the rights of humanity, not abstractly, but as a concrete political objective. Now, you may not see this immediately in the express statement from the CAP report. I quote, the United States was founded on the notion that the government should protect civil and political rights at all costs. These unalienable rights are the truths that the Founding Fathers held to be self-evident in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that they were endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Bill of Rights is a classic list of these guarantees of freedom and equal treatment under the law." Close quotation. Note, however, that the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution were not considered to be guarantees of free and equal treatment under the law, but rather restraints upon government above the law. Thus, what Abraham Lincoln took to be a standard maxim of a free society is to CAP only a notion that government should protect civil and political rights by any means necessary. Or still more clearly, unlimited government power is required to effectuate a notion of civil rights.
That is the reason that the cap statement goes on to say, American progressives have historically understood that political freedoms are empty vessels in the absence of basic life-sustaining resources. People who lack basic access to food, shelter, healthcare, or education cannot fully or even partially enjoy these freedoms. Economic disparities and social discrimination have relegated large swaths of the population to lives of poverty, close quotation. To have a right on this account is to enjoy substantively whatever is denoted by the right. A right to life predicates the enjoyment of means of living. Here delineated as covering most basic human activity, food, shelter, healthcare, education. Accordingly, the concept of rights employed by neo-progressives and civil rights in particular is the concept of human welfare or flourishing. It is for this reason that we must distinguish the neo-progressives from the original progressives, and that's what George Washington, that's what Abraham Lincoln called themselves, whose focus in the Declaration of Independence lay squarely on individual and collective agency and responsibility for human welfare. Government protected the pursuit of happiness precisely in the form of securing individual and collective agency and responsibility. What this means in sum is that neo-progressives substituted government for America, while the people fell in love not with government, but with America. America is a way of life, not a government. Government is merely America's personal valet. In the neo-progressive model, agency belongs to the government and not to the people. Accordingly, there is less need to defend the efficacy of individual and collective agency, for the people are the beneficiaries rather than the performers of civil rights. In fact, the CAP statement maintains, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, neo-progressive leaders sought primarily to advance a policy of meeting basic economic and social needs, which are necessary if the principles behind the Bill of Rights are to be realized. The 21st century progeny of these neo-progressives regard this project as elaborating a second Bill of Rights. So let us be clear. What matters to the neo-progressives is to attain not the surface guarantees of the Bill of Rights, but what lies behind the Bill of Rights. The equal and impartial administration of justice, for example, is realized not in procedures of fairness, but in outcomes that may be empirically described as fair. All of this re-rendering of the founding of the United States takes place, as previously suggested, in a new context in which human rights are to be protected not for this or that particular people, but rather for people in general, for people globally. If this attainment is achievable and understandable only in the context of empirically describable outcomes, then it follows that the idea of human rights for the neo-progressive is rather a that toward which we strive, as opposed to a that without which all striving is illegitimate. Although this argument could have been induced from the principles of Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Roosevelt or Jimmy Carter or Barack Obama, 
The Center for American Progress statement preferred to pose it as deriving from the creation of the United Nations and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They said, a new global consensus emerged after the world collapsed into chaos, aggression, and mass slaughter during World Wars I and II. Interesting that they would describe it that way rather than victory, but to go on. That lasting peace required the protection of individual rights and freedoms in all countries. Although the work of securing true liberty and equality for all presents numerous diplomatic, humanitarian, and military difficulties, it remains the duty of progressives to defend these ideals and to help turn them into reality for people everywhere. Moreover, they're not done yet. Progressives have argued for years that the United States' own security interests are better met by relying upon global political consensus, international human rights precedents, and American human rights laws in response to such national security threats. Close quotations. Now, it is neither the case that the justification for this demand is purely tactical or prudential. For the neo-progressives maintain that human rights are derived in part from the consensus of the international community. That is to say, the opinions of international policymakers is the source of rights in place of that rational opinion that confirms the correct identification of human rights. The latter, of course, was the standard enunciated in the Declaration of Independence when its framers submitted facts to a candid world for whose opinions they had a decent respect. A global political consensus bespeaks rather a global or international authority as a legitimate exponent and responsible agent that realizes human rights. That is an evolving standard, which the Center for American Progress regards as a more flexible approach to human rights that offers the possibility of reconciling new understandings of human rights with a new and changing world. Naturally, there must follow from the redefinition of civil rights, a redefinition of state sovereignty. Since the new order must protect the good governance values that precipitated the founding of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, based on progressive commitments to dignified life, liberty, and security for all people across the globe, not on the supremacy of state powers. The separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God, entitled the American Revolutionaries, ceases to be the foundation for a guarantee of human rights in the eyes of neo-progressives. Since the realization of human rights depends upon their global realization, there can no longer be a defense of the notion that one people might realize what other peoples must perforce live without. <laughs> Civil and political rights include the rights to life, liberty, freedom of association, fair and equal treatment under the law. Economic, social, and cultural rights are made up of such fundamental needs as the right to food, decent living conditions, education, and basic health care. Together, these two sets of rights make up the universal, indivisible, and interdependent and interrelated list of basic human rights entitlements recognized under international law. That completes the portrait. Rights that U.S. citizens long have celebrated as a source of their liberties have been reconstituted as an obligation to bring not liberty, but welfare entitlements to the people of the globe. On those terms, America is not beloved 
as a substantive moral commitment. It is at best a useful tool to seek a remoter goal. America cannot be the object of our affection when global happiness hangs in the balance. Neither, therefore, can national character describe our moral attainments or commitments. What then becomes of liberty when detached from national character? Carl Scott recently published an intelligent discussion of the five meanings of liberty. And we can discover in that discussion the missing link in these developments, namely the moral imperatives present at the outset of the American love story. Scott identified natural rights liberty, community self-governance liberty, economic autonomy liberty, social justice liberty, and personal autonomy liberty as the five concepts. Next, he explained how dominant neo-progressive thought had compressed the five into the last two as the meaningful political or policy concepts of liberty. This makes sense of the contemporary discourse, which treats liberty as enjoyment rather than as moral agency. However, this five-fold typology does not well capture the founding meaning of liberty, which far from invoking morally indifferent personal autonomy, embraced self-government as a personal moral obligation rather than as a collective practice. The protection of natural rights was indeed the protection of the right of self-government or consent. And it is in that light alone that the right to liberty leads to a right of revolution. None of Scott's five meanings taken alone can rationally ground the right of revolution, which reveals their inadequacy as explanations of liberty, however ably they characterize contemporary discourse. But Scott captures eloquently the neo-progressive transformation that led to obscuring the right of revolution, and hence the true understanding of liberty. And this is what he writes. What the progressives and the New Deal liberals feared, however, was that older American dogmas would keep the nation's democracy from directing its own social development as they envisioned. They found two dogmas particularly regrettable. The first was what they broadly denounced as individualism by which they basically meant economic autonomy liberty. Progressives traced the roots of this individualism to the founding itself, but many of them put more of the blame upon economic theories of later origin. Either way, while such individualism has been a useful creed for pioneer farmers and small town merchants to hold, the modern economy was increasingly coming to be divided into corporations and wage earners. There was no longer a frontier where one could carve out property by mixing one's labor into the land in the manner extolled by Lockean theory. Thus, belief in inviolable individual rights, and particularly the rights to contract and use properly freely, actually served to further entrench the power of corporations against that of individuals." Close quotation. Now, how this cashes out in our time is that we experience a crabbed politics in which claims of moral rights are translatable only as claims for governmental intervention rather than as assertions of unalienable rights. This was evident decades ago in the campaign for a school prayer amendment. It is more evident today in the campaign to defend traditional marriage through governmental recognition. When a robust assertion of rights would withdraw from all recognition of state power in this regard, 
a more tenuous claim of rights as governmental privileges petitions for political recognition. Yet nothing could be clearer than that the sure path to defend holy matrimony, what after all is traditional marriage, among eons of various traditions. The sure path to defend holy matrimony is by severing all connection with the state in relation to it. The temptation of Philadelphia Archbishop Charles Chaput to surrender his civil license is the correct response to state-enforced same-sex marriage. I could even imagine public protest of citizen couples burning their marriage licenses on courthouse steps to reclaim the moral high ground in defense of holy matrimony. The liberty that derives, that drives the American love story derives from self-government as present at the founding, not as a communitarian value, but as a core moral theory positioning the individual to act as a rights-bearing agent. Therefore, it is out of sync with what Scott identifies as central today. He said, it has also become clear that many Americans now regard this individual autonomy notion of liberty as a central feature of our democratic heritage. To every appearance, therefore, moral frontiers have emerged at which we undergo character-structuring influences no less dramatic than those heretofore attributed to geographic frontiers. These moral frontiers, decision points at which Americans must rely upon themselves and not on government to steer their course, may be variously accounted for. In the main, though, we may safely affirm that they have always been present. In the first century under the Constitution, it was not so much the primitive wilderness that shaped national character, as the fact that the hardy pioneers always had, hard on their heels, parsons and educators determined to wield moral influence. If they were self-reliant individuals, it was as much because they accepted responsibilities as because they were left to their own devices. In this sense, therefore, the existence of the moral frontier is a recurring phenomenon and not a new one. It colored the American love story through the end of slavery and Lincoln's helmsmanship. Can it also see Americans through the era of moral and or cultural disintegration we now observe? To some, the upsurge in cultural variation is critical. Samuel Huntington counted it as posing the potential end of American history, even before Rabbi Prezhansky. He meant that national character has undergone irreversible changes under the pressures to integrate widely varying cultural perspectives. But is that so? It is easy to mistake a moment of trenchant political or policy decision in which compromise is the essence of prudent management with an inflection point in which adherence to an absolute moral criterion is essential. It may be difficult as a matter of practice to accommodate enormous numbers of immigrants. But that does not rule out a compromise bottomed on fundamental terms of justice and thus coherent with the American love story. It seems rather that what would mortally injure American liberty would be such an inflection point as one in which citizens surrendered fundamental moral principle instead of resisting its abandonment. To that end, Moral persuasion remains the fundamental tool, and wise statesmanship remains the best hope. We might better seek guidance for such purposes 
at a greater remove from our felt necessities. And therefore, I will conclude by pointing to such a guide in the form of Xenophon's Agesilaos. Agesilaos, whose very name means the people's guide. Xenophon's Agesilaos celebrates a monarch and serves as an example of possible interpretations of the significance of national character. This king, Spartan king, Agesilaos, was said to have formed his soul so as to be impregnable, impregnable to money, voluptuous pleasures, and fear. Xenophon distinguished Agesilaus' justice, his courage or wisdom, and moderation or continence from the virtues of piety and patriotism. By bringing the reach of the former virtues within the range of a monarch's will, Xenophon elevated them, at least insofar as what is both good for us and accessible to us is higher than what is merely good. Agesilaus put his virtues to good use, or properly fared well on account of his virtues. They show the political image of a Socrates. Xenophon revived the opening question of his work, concluding in chapter 10 that Agesilaus is rightly believed to be a completely good man. The closing chapter, the summary, completed the account of that complete goodness. He was in awe of the gods, even among enemies, and in awe of what gods could do for men, hence his piety. After the first half of the summary, the gods vanish, from paragraph 9 to the end, the reader revels in the man, the monarch, for whom the good he could himself do, the moral commitment, was an obsession. Xenophon's praise of Agesilaus takes seriously Agesilaus' purported concern for the common good. A 20th century Xenophon, by contrast, would have interpreted these same characteristics in light of a mere attempt to gain influence over others for the sake of some hidden agenda. Why then should we afford old-fashioned Xenophon's naivete any credibility? If we look again, we will note that old-fashioned Xenophon was not uncritical. In chapter 2, he allowed that there might be some other way in which one could find fault with Agesilaus's apparently confusing the common good of Sparta, a national good, and the common good of Greece, a transnational good. Yet, he discerned an ultimate objective which he judged to be the controlling factor in Agesilaus's mind, and which in any case serves to bring us to reflect on the virtue and paradox of friendship as the aim of politics. Friendship as an end both necessitates and undermines justice, that same justice which the beloved has a right to expect from the lover, and vice versa. Defined by Aristotle as the preference of another's good, Friendship in its ideal expression is the relationship among all citizens and something to be aimed at in legal arrangements. But the stronger that passion, the more possible it is that someone might prefer a friend's good to the city's good. And there's a bigger problem to which Xenophon points in chapter 7. So listen. Well then, a messenger came to him with news that in the Corinthian battle, eight Spartans had died while nearly 10,000 of the adversaries. He did not become evidently delighted, but he said then, Alas for you, O Greece, when the perish were sufficient of living to win in a fight against all the barbarians. Indeed, when the Corinthian refugees said that they would give over the city to them and made a display of the machine with which they were looking to take the wall, he still did not wish to throw his forces against it saying that it was not necessary to bring the Greek cities to slavery, but to their prudence, 
If we annihilate those of us who err, we must see that we are not left with no one to overpower the barbarian. Again, if it is good to be a hater of the Persian, because of old he set forth in order to enslave Greece, and presently he forms alliances with whomsoever will do the greatest mischief, gives presents to whomever would, receiving them do special evil to the Greeks, and would join in helping any peace through which he accounts we will make war with each other, all men see this. But who, except a Gezilaus, ever made it his business that any community should revolt from the Persian, or that the revolted should not be cut off, or that the king suffering evil will not be able to give trouble to the Greeks? Who, when his fatherland made war against the Greeks, nevertheless did not neglect the common good of Greece? Here, Xenophon showed Agesilaus' elevation of soul by revealing that he could consider the national good of Sparta as compatible with the good of other peoples. The problem of every regime, the necessity of exclusivity, is overcome by a large ability to relate the end of the city to the human end. True to the wildest imaginings of Socrates, it is the political philosopher Xenophon who enables us to consider this question in a way which is far more fruitful than merely to assume universality or common humanity. With this example in mind, let us return then to America's Agesilaus, George Washington. His national character project spoke not only of the American character to be established. In the letter to Theodoric Bland, he added, and it is of the utmost importance to stamp favorable impressions upon our national character. Let justice then be one of its characteristics and gratitude another. In the circular address, he also described the context in which that character was to be established and to serve as a guarantor for liberty and self-government. That context was the expectation of justice. He phrased it thus, the path of our duty is plain before us. Honesty will be found on every experiment to be the best and only true policy. Let us then as a nation be just, let an attention to the cheerful performance of their proper business as individuals and as members of society be earnestly inculcated on the citizens of America. Then will they strengthen the hands of government and be happy under his protection. Everyone will enjoy, Washington said, the fruit of his labors. Everyone will enjoy his own acquisitions without molestation and without danger. And then he capped it all off. In this state of absolute freedom and perfect security, who will grudge to yield a very little of his property to support the common interests of society and ensure the protection of government? Washington famously closed the circular address with a tacit quotation from Micah 6.8, which read as follows. I now make it my earnest prayer that God would be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, and without an humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. As Washington experienced it, the American love story was a love of justice, a story of Americans asserting themselves with expectations of justice in America's dealings. He made the future of the country to depend upon the conduct of his people, 
the use of whose liberty would determine how far the nation could remain faithful. Something of the same order of consideration was still present in 1964 when Ronald Reagan spoke of the war against communism and said, if we lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. That sentiment is exactly what Abraham Lincoln meant when he declared in his 1854 Peoria speech that if there's anything which it is the duty of the whole people to never entrust to any hands but their own, that thing is the preservation and perpetuation of their own liberties and institutions. After the passage of more than two centuries, a consensus of the best has emerged. The future of liberty depends upon American national character and whether it sustains a single-minded commitment to America as a substantive moral expression. A cloudless future for liberty would mean that Americans are falling in love again. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.